want to basically spend a few minutes talking about the providence of God. And um, you, it's, there's so much involved that um, this is going to be so brief. He makes the axe head float. He creates out of nothing. He causes the sun to stand still. He can defeat an entire army on his own and cause his enemies to fall dead as he pleases. He brings the dead son of a widow back to life and he commanded Lazarus to walk out of the tomb. The sick were healed, the blind received their sight. Our God is a mighty, miracle-working God. But he doesn't always work that way. His people are sown in two. John the Baptist is beheaded. Illnesses lead to death without a resurrection. The gospel falls on deaf ears. There are shipwrecks, scourges, stonings, and whips. There are generations without revival, and then unexpectedly, thousands come to faith. There's hard work and difficult circumstances with little tangible fruit. And in these difficult things, God's at work. As much as it is difficult to admit, the Bible clearly teaches that God is just as involved and active when he accomplishes his will in the mundane and difficult as he is when he accomplishes his will through the miraculous and amazing. The Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes this truth when it teaches that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Let's consider for a few minutes an overview of the book of Acts. It begins with Jesus commissioning his disciples for world evangelism before his ascension into heaven to the right hand of the Father. If you just look at that, the anticipation is as excited as it could possibly be. Here's the Son of God going back to the Father, and he commissions his disciples. He tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Imagine you're with Jesus and he tells you this. The resurrected Son of God, you're going to have power, mission, gospel, world conquest, The miraculous evidently was about to burst on the scene in a way that had never happened before. 
but things didn't quite turn out that way. The way you would expect if you were standing there and hearing these words. But if you want to briefly summarize the Pauline portion of the book of Acts, not the first part which mainly concentrates on Peter, it would include a list like this. Major persecution hits the church following Pentecost, resulting in the death of key leaders. Saul, later called Paul, an enemy of Christians who tries to decimate the church, is chosen to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul is persecuted and rejected from city to city with some amazing responses, but a ton of suffering. Paul is almost killed in Jerusalem, but God confirms to him that by God's sovereign plan, Paul will make it to Rome. Paul is arrested by the Romans, the great enemy of the people of Israel, their foreign occupier of Jerusalem. They're shipwrecked, from which the entire crew survives and is stranded on an island. Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake while picking up sticks to start a fire, and he lives. Finally, Paul arrives in Rome and rents a house in which he is in house arrest. The promise of Acts 1-9 is fulfilled in part. The gospel reaches the center of the known world and begins to extend beyond. At every turn, God's using Paul and his companions to accomplish major goal his accomplished major gospel work throughout the world and yet despise the the happening of a few miracles and divine rescues the majority of the book of acts is the testimony of hard difficult labors in the face of suffering risk danger and threat imagine for a moment how God could have carried out his plan in the book of Acts he could have assigned a host of angels to protect and guard his people and messengers every stone that was thrown could have bounced off of an invisible shield that he put around his people every believer could have led a faithful life concluded with a peaceful death. Each time the gospel was shared, it could have resulted in the glorious and immediate transformation of lives. Roman rulers and Jewish leaders could have been immediately convinced of the truth of the gospel and the kingship of Jesus. But that wasn't God's plan. He used the miraculous differently than we would have done. He blessed in mundane ways that we don't often understand. He utilizes suffering to our discouragement. And often he withholds desired blessings to our frustration. And there's the rub. If we possessed it, we wouldn't use divine power the way God does. We wouldn't write world history the way he does. 
in the end we in the end we really want to tell God how he ought to exercise sovereign power but we offer suggestions from a perspective of sinful biases and limited as limited beings we all like job at the very end want to call god to account we wrongly think that the more miraculously god accomplishes his plan the more he is at work in our lives we wrongly think that the presence of suffering is a sign that god's plan has gone awry consider these examples is God more at work when he heals an illness or when he allows it to end in death? Can you chart a Christian's personal holiness by how many people they've led to Christ? Is a Christian tax accountant as significant in the kingdom of God as a minister? Are small towns as important mission fields as major urban centers? And the list goes on. But that's enough to point out the tendency to pit the ordinary against the extraordinary, to make assumptions about the effectiveness of suffering and blessing. What are we supposed to do when we have such a firm testimony of God's character in the Bible, but we live in such a complex world? We find in the life of Jesus all we need to know about God's purposes in our world. Jesus' life, though often filled with miraculous power, divine power, was also humble, unassuming, and filled with suffering. There's no contradiction here. At times you could not pick him out of a crowd, and at other times he was transfigured on a mountain top revealing unique divine glory he could both walk on water and fall asleep in a boat on a stormy sea his, fa- his family declared him to be crazy but he's the one that cast out a demon out of a crazed lifelong demoniac his victory was his defeat in his death he brought life he demolished the apparent contradiction of God's work in the world as he culminated God's work. When we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we find someone who can sympathize with our weakness and yet someone who conquered sin. We find him the most blessed man who had ever lived and simultaneously the man who has experienced the most suffering. Jesus resolves the tension of life in this fallen world. Christians are the only ones who can testify to the miraculous and rejoice in the mundane. Christians are the only ones who can sing in suffering and work joyfully through difficulty. It isn't that we don't feel the tensions of life's struggles. It is that we have someone who has gone before us to chart the path that is often dark and confusing. We wouldn't write our stories the way God does, but we also are unable to love 
as he does. Jesus is all the proof that we need. That was one of page number one. In talking about sovereignty, I want to read Psalm 104. It's not the longest psalm in the Bible, but it's far from the shortest. So if you would, just pay attention as I read Psalm 104 and hear what it has to say. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the watches. Ah. Let me be sure this is not going to fly away. get back to where I was. All right. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He walks upon the wind, the wings of the, the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He establishes the earth upon his foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep, as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down, to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork whose home in the, is the fir tree. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the shepherdim, the rock badgers. He made the moon for his for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night. 
in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is there is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There are ships, there the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it, they all wait for you, to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, and they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That's the Lord. That's who he is. That's what he does. The siege by the colonial army against the British troops entrenched in Boston lasted nearly a year. Neither side could attain a a decisive edge. The tide turned on two remarkable feats. Peter Lilback writes about these achievements. In early March 1776, Washington and his men managed to secretly assemble major artillery aimed at the ten indefensible British garrisons and ships. Through the ingenuity of Henry Knox, whom Washington assigned the task, the Americans managed to sled more than 200 gigantic cannons and weaponry from the captured Fort Ticonderoga through countless miles of wilderness track of ice and snow. In the middle of the night, without the British noticing or stopping them, the Americans placed the artillery upon the heights of Dorchester, looking down at the British. By the time the British discovered this, it was too late. Thus, the British, under General William Howe, suffered a humiliating setback. All they could do was flee the city and the big guns as quickly as possible. To whom did Washington give the praise for this remarkable turn of events? To God. He wrote these words to his brother. Upon the discovery of the works next morning, great preparations were made for attacking them. But not being ready before the afternoon, and the weather getting very tempestuous, much blood was saved, and a very important blow to one side or the other was prevented. 
that this most remarkable interposition of providence for, for, is for some wise purpose. I hope not, or I have not a doubt. The course of the war greatly impressed on George Washington the doctrine of providence. Two years later, in another letter, he would write, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this, the strange changes in the war, which is what he's talking about, that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. But it will be time enough for me to turn preacher when my present appointment ceases. And therefore I shall add no more on the doctrine of providence. By God's providence, Washington turned president of the United States instead of preacher, which is what he said he was going to do when he retired from that public office. But let's take up the topic that so fascinated him. Providence from the Westminster Confession of Faith says, God the great creator of all things does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions and things from the greatest even to the least. By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. There's one verse in Romans that sort of summarizes it from Romans 11.36. says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You know, deism is a... Um, a form of Christianity that's that's greatly lacking in a lot of truth because deism says that God is like a watchmaker that winds up a watch and then disappears and lets it run on its own. So they, they say that God created everything, but then he doesn't really interfere anymore. And that is so completely contrary to Scripture because God's hand is in everything we do. It's like he started, he created everything, and then that creating power continued on to be sure that things continue to run the way they're supposed to. If he takes his hand off us, off of, off of us, even for a second, we can't breathe. We disintegrate. It's only because of God that we have a heart that beats and lungs that work. So for every second, we need God. And that's what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying in um, other words. Now, absolutely not. Not even close. At one time, Jefferson was assumed to be one, but I don't think if that's accurate.
In other words, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, providence is the belief that God in his goodness and power preserves, upholds, directs, and governs all creatures, all actions, and all things, from the largest star in the galaxy to the smallest sparrow in a tree. God the Creator and King of all governs everything to the praise of His glory, of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. What, what every definition comes back to is that God does everything. The bottom line of why he does everything is for his glory. It's always for the glory of God. You may not see it to begin with, but that's always the end game for his glory. Creation was unique. It was an exercise of divine energy causing the world to be. And providence is a continued exercise of the same energy. God, by his own will, keeps all creatures in being. He involves himself in every event and directs all things to their appointed end. God is completely in charge of his world. His hand may be invisible to us, but his perfect rule extends to all things. God did not create the world and then disappear to let it run on its own, but he's actively involved in all things. To show God's control, here are some different scriptures that let me just they're just brief one line most of them. God's control over the universe. The scripture says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. God's control over the physical world. The scripture says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heavens and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. God's control over the creatures. He says, Look to the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor do they reap, nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God's control over the affairs of the nations. Scripture says he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. God's control over man's birth and his lot in life. Scripture says... Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. God's control over the outward or outward successes and failures of our lives. Scripture says, He has brought down rulers from their throne, and He has exalted those who were humble. And His control over all things that seem to be accidental or insignificant. The Scripture says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every, its every decision is from the Lord. And His control over the protection of the righteous. 
Scripture says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And his control in supplying the wants of his people, he says, He humbled you and let you be, hung- let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And his control in giving answers to prayer, ask, and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be opened to you. And his control in the exposure and punishment of the wicked, Scripture says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And when you're talking about evils, scriptures say, God punishes evil with evil. Scripture says, but my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own desires. And God permits evil. Scripture says, in the generation gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. That's Paul teaching, talking to the Athenians. And, and God brings good out of evil. In Acts it says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And he uses evil to test and discipline those that he loves. The scripture says, I'm talking about earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciples us for our good so that we must share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And one day he's going to redeem all of his people from the power and pressure and presence of evil altogether. Revelation says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices righteousness. You can go on and on and on about the sovereignty of God. It's um, There's no such thing as blind faith. Because God's providence is active in everything. He orders all outcomes and events after the counsel of his own will, again to his own glory. The 
his glory being the ultimate end of all of his actings, the center of where all the lines of providence meet. I am doing my best to skip over a number of things, the time constraints. You know, some people say that uh, there are a lot of things done in the world that are very disorderly and irregular, and surely God's providence is not in those things. But the things that seem to us to be irregular, God makes use of for his own glory. Suppose you were in a blacksmith shop, and you could see several sorts of tools, some crooked, some bowed, others hooked, would you condemn all these things because they didn't look the right kind of tool to you? The blacksmith makes use for all of them doing his work. And that's the way it is with the provinces of God. They seem to be up to us to be very crooked and strange, but they all carry on God's work. God's people are in a sad condition so often. Things seem to be out of order. And those things that are best seem to be in the lowest condition. But scriptures and the writers, the uh, Puritans, say better is the loss that makes people humble than, su- than the success that makes them proud. Again, if the godly were not sometimes afflicted and given a decline in their outward comfort, How could their graces be seen, especially their faith and patience? If it were always sunshine, we would see no stars. So if we should always have prosperity, it would be hard to see the acting of men's faith. Thus we see, God's providences are wise and regular, though to us they seem very strange and crooked. There's a, um, a Scottish minister back in the 1700s named Thomas Boston. And he wrote a little book. Most of his books were massive. But he wrote a little small book called The Crook in Your Lot. And the subtitle was The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God in the Afflictions of Men Displayed. You read any of the Puritans, they all have a title that's two or three sentences long, it seems like. And when Boston says lot, like the title is the crook in your lot, your lot he means by the, the things that happen in your life, your circumstances, the shape of your life. And when he says crook, he means those unforeseen troubles that afflict all of us. So his aim in the the book is to help people that are experiencing crooks, troubles, in their circumstances. The suffering of the present time that you're living in. Romans 8, 
18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the text that he uses is Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Boston wants the people to understand that whatever crook, disturbance, difficulty there is in your life, it's of God's making. He says those who complain about these crooks are not seeing clearly. They think that they're the only ones that have trouble and other people don't have any trouble at all. Or at least nothing compared to what they have. They're just not seeing straight. And that's one of the devil's strategies to get people to think that others don't have to endure what they do. But because we live in the fallen world, in fallen bodies, with sin that yet resides within us, our lot, our difficulties, are an inevitable part of life. These crooks, again, he says, are made by God. And what they're there for is to strengthen us, for us to see that we will never get rid of these difficulties apart from God. And our own strength, they can't be overcome. And some of them may last forever. We may never overcome them. But the ones that we do overcome only come from God. He quotes Jesus' words of, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you shall find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Boston goes on, but I don't want to prolong it. There's, um, I think I want to stop there. There's another Puritan, Thomas Watson, but, um, and he's, he's quite, um, extraordinary, really. He's, he knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew. He, um, he was an Englishman rather than a Scottishman or a Scotsman. And he had a deep understanding of text and scripture that most modern people can't find their way through. And, um, there's no, he says, there's no such thing as chance or blind faith, but there is a providence which guides and governs the world. Providence is God's ordering all outcomes and events of things after the counsel of his will to his own glory. The last thing, sentence he made, St. Augustine, he quotes St. Augustine, and Augustine says, We are indebted to wicked men who against their wills do us good. So he's saying that God uses even the evil things to bring about his, his good for us. So, let's pray. Lord, there's a, an ordered way to talk about your sovereignty 
and I've missed it by a mile. But I pray that you would imprint on our hearts the fact that you never walk away and let things run on their own. But your plan is one that covers our lives and all things from beginning to end, from the heavens to the earth and all things in between. You are the God of order. You're the God of goodness. You're the God that calls your people to, to have blessings and also to endure difficulties because, Lord, it's all about you changing us to be like you. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would do that this day and continue on for the rest of our lives that we might draw close to you. In your name. Amen.